This ticker podcast is coming to you from the Citadel Securities Trading Post on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Hi, everyone. I meet a lot of interesting people in my line of work. Not a few mistake themselves for someone who has something to say. Our guest today isn't one of those people. A quick glance at his resume suggests Hervé Dutte is the kind of guy that's probably worth lending an ear. I did a lot of studies in, uh, in math and physics. Bachelor of Science from the Sorbonne, Master in Computer Science from Cambridge, and then a Master of Science in General Engineering. And then I landed at uh, BNP Paribas, it was called Paribas at the time, in banking. Meanwhile, he kept a few outside interests as well. I studied Japanese for five years. I studied handwriting analysis. Um, I taught in sociology. And once he was settled in banking, Dutte began an intensive study of music. I became a, a concert uh, performing uh, con- classical concert musician. Picked up a diploma in harmony, counterpoint, and fugue at Juilliard. Went on to Bafo reviews for his organ improvisations at St. Patrick's and Notre Dame cathedrals. Oh yeah, and there's a artist-in-residence gig at NYU. And somewhere along the way, he had time to get an MBA from Harvard. And really, lots of other stuff. So, busy guy. Likes the intellectual challenge. And clearly a man in search of a purpose. And now, perhaps, he's found it. On today's Ticker Podcast, BNP Paribas Chief Sustainability Officer Hervé Dutte on leadership, changing mindsets, and the future of sustainable finance. So I started in banking and I had more or less three chapters in my uh, career. The first one was um, in commodity derivatives. It was uh, a, a very, the very beginning of a market. Um, I participated to the very first uh, natural gas swap um, ever done in the world, which was between Enron and Paribas. Um, and basically, since I, since I was born, I have a midlife crisis every single day. But then there's a, there are periods where the midlife crisis is more intense than the other days. And, uh, and at the end of that first chapter, for, and it lasts for about two years to find what the next step will be. Um, one thing I was lacking in my career was leadership. Uh, I had a lot of responsibilities in terms of P&L, but no leadership of projects of people. And long story short, I found nothing better than taking a two-year sabbatical. And then I came back to trading again because I, w- I realized I was fairly addicted to, to, the, to, to the world of trading. And I spent another number of years in fixed income this, mo- this time, but with si- significant uh, leadership responsibilities because I set up the, uh, the municipal group for BNP Paribas mm-hmm. and basically what became kind of a hedge fund within a bank, which today we no longer have because of the Volcker rules and other regulations. And again, at the end of this chapter, another... Uh, more intense midlife crisis than um, than before. Um, and the other thing I was missing in my uh, professional life, uh, leadership had found and was done with it, but was um, something I didn't expect to find in my work when I started, uh, but it was societal uh, impact. Um, I had filled my life with, uh, my, my personal life, with uh, community engagement, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, as we came in the years 2010, 2012, 
um, it it dawned upon me that you know my work could be more pur purposeful, and that's really what prompted the the third chapter of the career, making uh, a shift, a voluntary shift that surprised everyone on the trading floor when I met it, which was to leave the capital markets world, to leave the even the, what we call the front office, and move to uh, a function that was not even known to most, which was taking the first job of head of CSR for the Americas uh, at BNP Paribas. But I did take it with really a trader's mind, mindset, uh, with really an eye, an eye focused on business. And my pitch at the time, which was a bit more than five years ago now, was um, up to now, CSR in banks is either two things. It's a, and it's a risk function, managing environmental and or social risk that the bank takes through its clients or transactions. Or it's what I would summarize as a do-good, feel-good type of activity, being a, a, a good citizen. Uh, but it was not seen at the time also as an opportunity for business. Uh, and there's a flip side to CSR, which I would say, which is uh, a value proposition uh, for, for businesses. And that's what I would, that's what I called at the time sustainability. I didn't coin the word, obviously. Uh, but no one saw that there was that sustainability was part of the responsibility uh, of, a, of a corporation. And I think we've seen that transition, and I'll let you speak again. But um, the, the, over the last 20, 25 years, we see processes becoming value proposition. What we used to call IT in the 90s, we call today digital. And in between, you had the emergence of the internet, 10 years later of the, of the iPhone, and 10 years later, the whole economy of Uber, uh, Tinder, uh, Airbnb, I mean, you name it. Uh, billions of dollars and millions of people employed. I would claim responsible behavior of cooperation, that's processes, operating with a low carbon footprint, uh, having gender diversity, all of that are processes. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're at a time where responsibility can also become a value proposition, not only it's right, but it also creates value. And so that's where we've moved from responsibility to sustainability. That would be my take on it. And is that how you pitched your new job to, to so, your boss? So, yeah, it's an interesting story because uh, uh, as I discovered this job before it was even posted, um, the person who talked to me about it then took a very somber face and she said, but we, 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 uh, we uh, pegged it at the director level and you're a managing director, right? And I was indeed an MD, even he head of a desk. So I was really over-calibrated, if I may say, or at least too expensive for where the role had been been defined and that's how overnight indeed I came with that pitch how to recalibrate the role um, to to what I really wanted to do um, you had it been properly calibrated maybe I would still be uh, eliminating paper cups on the, uh, on, the uh, on the office floor uh, to this day but you actually had the chance to sort of define your job you took it a few steps further than perhaps they expected uh, absolutely well more than a few I mean it, it was really uh, creating a new, a new vision, a new roadmap that was not as defined as I can express it today, obviously. But, but it was really that sense that, and that came really from my personal life, this conviction that when you do the right thing, that's what creates the most value. It's, we experience that in our personal life, telling the truth and so on. But it can really resonate in very concrete business terms in any corporation. 
And that is the message that resonated uh, throughout your organization because you really changed the whole corporate culture. So it did, and quite honestly, in fact, the very first six months, I didn't focus so much on business. Um, so I had a very clear vision of what I wanted to achieve. But what I focused on, and it's a word I cannot stand anymore today, but it was on, the, it was on purpose. Um, five, six years ago, it was not that trendy to talk about purposeful work, what's the meaning of work, what's the, and by extension, what's the meaning of, of your life, which is not a question I would ask publicly, but I would certainly leave my audience to walk away home and, and asking himself or herself that question. So, but I knew, I knew I was alone with this idea, um, and I needed to quickly create a, a large set of ambassadors to help me in, in this mission. And I, and I thought there's nothing, nothing that would be more effective than reconnecting people to their inner dreams. My conviction that was, was that everyone joined the workforce with a dream to change the world big or small, but everyone, 10 years ago, 40 years ago, whenever that was, anyone who worked in a big corporation, at least, you know, having done some undergraduate studies, was with the hope to have some form of impact. And then we know what happens 5, 10, 15, 20 years uh, later, uh, where the weight of life uh, uh, takes over. Mm -hmm. Um, But my conviction was everyone walked in this office with that dream. And if I reconnect them, reconnect them to this inner dream and show them that, you know what, if you want to change the world, it's either at BNP Paribas, because that's where we spend 10 hours a day on weekdays, or you, or you have to ask yourself whether, whether you should be here. Because um, So it was really reconnecting people to this desire to have an impact, big or small, and that the workplace, if they remain there, was the place to do it. So that's really what I focused on, on, on for six months. And quite honestly, after 12 months, I had close to 200 ambassadors within the firm that were really inspired and could see with their own creativity, with their own skill sets, how in their work, whether they're in syndication, whether they're in uh, equity-linked green bond, oops, whether they are in um, uh, coverage, uh, what's the angle, what's the extra mile that I can do with what makes my day-to-day job? and not only fulfill my original mission, but actually have an impact. So that's how it all started. That, that's wonderful. I wonder, though, you almost created an insurgency. Uh, I don't know how the, uh, the, sort it, of the C-suite, uh, the top management, thought of that. It, so. it was... So I, I, I was lucky to have... Uh, as I mentioned, BNP Paribas is the only place I ever worked. Mm-hmm. And through years, I... I guess I established credibility and respect and and and, and camaraderie. I would say good good relationships. Um, so that allowed for my taking a lot of, of uh, unusual roles. Um, being creative by nature, I was not afraid to mm-hmm. to, to to disrupt uh, the the way of doing things. Uh, it was a risk, but every time, you know, when you reconnect people to to aspirational um, uh, pr- prospects, uh, y- you gain friends and, and, and every single day. So the movement was unstoppable, and quite honestly, after 6 to 12 months, um, 
top management saw the, the resonance it had within the firm. And I must say that among those ambassadors, I had a slice of the entire hierarchy. Obviously, I had more millennials okay. and associates and vice presidents, but I had also exco members, uh, fewer in number, yeah. obviously. But, uh, but everyone participated to this uh, change of, uh, of uh, look on the world. I think, I think, you know, you're right. We are at an inflection point, And what you did was kind of the time had kind of come. Uh, maybe not 10 years ago or even five years ago, but... I think we're, um, and I can offer maybe a, 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 a view on that. Um, I think indeed we are in this inflection point regardless of the time frame you take. You can take a 100-year time frame, say from 1970 to 2070. So 1970s is the time when... You know, a number of politicians were starting to think of lobbying for tax breaks, for renewable and cleaner energy uh, solutions and so on. So you could say they were pioneers in some ways of this transition we have to go through. And 2070 is basically the place where we should be fully decarbonized uh, right. and so on. Right. So you can take that time frame. We're kind of in the middle of it. You take the 15-year lens of uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the UN SDGs, which is 2015, 2030. You know, when I started five, six years ago, we were right at the beginning of that. Uh, or you take um, the critical time when really we have to shift the dial and it's, we're in this, those critical five years, you know, where we can't wait till 2030 and stop. Yeah. Uh, so we're no really, way. It's so, really too late. so it's really this inflection point that's on many dimensions is quite powerful. You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, the sound of global investor relations. So the firm as a whole uh, made this very bold decision. I, I think it remains today the only event to have done it, which was to decide indeed to... Um, no longer finance uh, corporations that are involved in primarily, primarily involved in the exploration, production, transportation, marketing, and trading of uh, oil or gas uh, exploited from shale. We still, uh, we're, we still finance very large, diversified uh, corporations and oil and gas corporations. Mm -hmm. But certainly, we exited from a quite a large number of. Uh, relationships uh, where their primary business was uh, shale oil and gas and the view of the firm was primarily an environmental view um, shale and fracking are, have a number of issues ranging from wa uh, water safety to micro earthquakes and so on but the one that the bank was really concerned was methane, what we call fugitive methane emissions uh, one molecule of methane basically is as potent as 86 to 88 molecules of uh, carbon dioxide over a 20-year period when it comes to uh, climate forcing. So uh, gas leaks are very damaging to the, to the planet, unfortunately. Yes, natural gas is a transition fuel, but we have enough gas from conventional uh, sources to do that, uh, and the bank's position was not to accelerate uh, a method uh, that was damaging for the planet in the long run. It was a very, very tough decision. 
So you've had a major impact on your organization. So I'm not at the origin of this one. Uh, which, uh, to be honest, where the impact maybe was, this was really a top management even, I would say, a CEO decision. And quite frankly, it would have been pretty, very, very hard to drive any other way. Okay. Um, that decision was made about a year and a half ago. But this is a testimony of how over the last five to six years, uh, the fast pace of evolution of, uh, of mindsets, mm-hmm. um, how uh, at all layers of, uh, of management of the corporation, how we take our responsibilities. In, and it's not easy. I mean, we're not perfect in, uh, in all regards, but we try to do, to find the best intersection of full responsibility and, and more immediate uh, constraints and responsibilities that we also have to honor. Well, I think, and I've noticed that when revolutions happen, they happen fast. They mm-hmm. happen quicker than most mm-hmm. people suspect. And I think, getting back to what we started, we're at the inflection point now. You've changed your organization. So how do you, now you spend your, your day-to-day job trying to change other organizations. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yes. So initially, it was changing mindsets, uh, being uh, aspirational, inspire people to have impact and immediately connect that to actually your day-to-day job, your, your work. And believe me, in, as an investment bank, what we do is very esoteric. We do swaps, we do options, we do bond underwriting. And it's with that, that first and foremost, that as a bank, we have to change the world. So now, um, what I do mostly is accompanying senior bankers and, and visiting clients. And, and the pitch I have, try to have is a financial pitch. Uh, you know, banks have two types of clients, corporation, corporates and institutionals. I would say that for corporates, most corporates today, sustainability is a very strategic issue, uh, whether it's a water issues for uh, food and drink companies, uh, I won't name here very famous brands, or electricity for uh, data centers of very fi- famous tech companies. Um, Sustainability is an exercise of optimizing constraint resources. And typically, this requires re-engineering processes, which itself requires capital expenditures, which itself requires financing. So that's how you go from a very uh, uh, basic problem of not starving an Indian village from water, if you're a bottling company, into a financing problem. So that's the first first step we need to create is reconnect treasurers uh, uh, at our corporate clients with what they're truly financing. Because, you know, when you raise uh, three or five billion dollars every quarter, you may eventually forget sometimes the ultimate purpose of it. And then the second job is to show them that when they tie those financing back to their original purpose or to the good behavior, the good holistic behavior of their firm, because there are a number of large uh, listed companies that really try to do their best, you can improve your financing conditions. Ideally, through a reduced cost of funding, sometimes in an enlar- enlarged base of investors, uh, eventually creating more stability in your funding sources and so on. Sometimes, as it's an op- finance is an opportunity to tell of a story that is strategic to the firm through the raising of a financing. The, you're telling a sustainability story that's a cornerstone of a business strategy and you're telling that story to the financial community. Sometimes it's mere branding uh, uh, benefits. Anyway, there's a whole host of benefits that can be achieved 
through sustainable finance and that's what I try to do along with senior bankers it's to uh, reconnect so at our client firms people who are in charge of finance with purposeful uh, projects that their company are doing but you know we're so numerous in those large corporations that we tend to forget the ultimate goal what, what would be our message, your message to IR people? How can they become you, mm -hmm. or something approximating you, in their own organization? So my message uh, for them would be indeed to start from the investor base, which is who they face uh, for the most part, and really reflect uh, those growing pools of capital, first of all, that are really looking for... Um, strong performers in terms of environmental, social and governance issues um, and as well how it's being now pervasive and tainting way beyond the so-called impact investing or socially responsible investing world how it's really becoming a prerequisite um, even demanded by society uh, even if, if you take the example of passive investors, for example, which we yeah. think you know should be the, le the least involved into this uh, story by definition of their business, which is to be passive and index following and, and so on. Even those, and start with the largest one, which is uh, BlackRock, I believe, with over $6 trillion of assets. Um, which are really leading the way in, in calling uh, corporations uh, to basically be purposeful. Uh, otherwise, as uh, in the words of Larry Fink, uh, you're, you're at risk of losing our business. And what's very interesting is that those passive investors, uh, rather passive asset managers, um, are taking a stance um, through both corporate engagement because that's the only tool that frankly they have at their disposal they, can, they cannot change allocation uh, when you're an index tracker um, but on the other hand the tool that you have at your disposal is engaging the board and, and engaging the management committees of the, of the corporations you own in your portfolio um, and and they're telling their clients, which are retail uh, investors and so on, they're telling their clients, this is what we care for, this is what we think matters, uh, and basically this is how we intend to engage um, corporations uh, that, that work. And they're basically disclosing that to their clients, which are investors, and then their, their clients are free to go to a different shop if they disagree. But but it's trillions of dollars now that are being committed uh, to, uh, to this dialogue with companies. Uh, so I think the first thing from an investor relation point of view, sustainability is a great way to renew the conversation, to spark interest, you know, because from quarterly results to quarterly results, the story is not that much different. So it's an, an and the great thing about and that was the beginning of our conversation. It's all about business. We're not doing this. Or we're not talking about this because it's about saving the planet. Even if ultimately that's great and yeah. that's what makes me happy. But I don't need to be at BMP Paribas to save the planet. So if 
I'm at BMP Paribas, or an investor relations officer is at XYZ Corporation. You know, it's to try to, through our work, to save the planet, which is, which is different. And so sustainability is a great way for, for companies to um, talk about their business to investors. You know, when, again, when you're a, a large beer company, uh, when you're a, a soda company, and you talk about sustainability rather than just your latest uh, quarterly, just quarterly results, you're telling a lot on your strategy. You're telling a lot about your consumers. You're telling a lot about your distributors, like Walmart or whatever, and what they're asking from you, the sustainable packaging that they're forcing you to have, or the uh, billions of gallons of water that they're asking your farmers to use less to grow the potatoes that makes your potato chips that you're putting on the shelf, and that if you don't, it's going to be another brand that's going to move up. So I think sustainability is a great segue to uh, to renew the conversation, to excite investors, but at, and at the end of the day, to, to talk about what's going to make or break uh, your business strategy over the next five years uh, versus your competitors. Hervé Dutay, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And that's your ticker podcast for this week. Let us know what you think. Email a voice memo to editorial at irmagazine.com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Cassette. Citadel Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. The content of this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Citadel Securities.